This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles today to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, as we continue in our series, Rooted and Built Up. And today, we're going to be in chapter 3 and focus especially on the first seven verses of chapter 3. But really, the first 17 verses of chapter 3 go together. It's a beautiful portion of God's Word on, on Christian living a few years ago, my, my children actually memorized these 17 verses as something that they were, were doing for uh, a project. And so mom and dad got to memorize it along with them. And I'll tell you, we talked about memorizing the book of Colossians. Maybe some of you have been working on that. If you weren't going to memorize the whole book, these first 17 verses of chapter 3 would be great to, to memorize. So terrific on the, the Christian life. Paul here is talking about things that we need to subtract and things that we need to add. Um, Things that we need to put on and things that we need to put off in our lives. And and sins that we need to kill to execute. So today we're going to talk about executing misery makers in these first seven verses. But let's look at the first 17 verses um, and then we'll, we'll focus on one through seven today. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we see in these verses really a a vision of life, the new life that we can have in in you. But we know that that part of uh, coming into the fullness of that new life is putting to death remnants of the old life. And so as we talk today about executing these misery makers, Father, may we be reminded that we can only do that in your strength, only by your grace, only in your power, because your presence is with us. As we just heard sung so beautifully, uh, you are here. You are with us always. We're not trying to do life alone anymore as believers. We have your Holy Spirit living within us, your resurrection power within us. You've given us the power to to live differently, to put off, to put on. And so, Father, we pray that you would show us these things in a a deeper way over as we walk through this text together and and today as we, we think about things that need to be executed killed. Uh, Father, we, we know that we, we need you. We need your power. And so we pray that you would come right now, minister to our hearts, speak to us today, change our hearts, change our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the rainy evening of May 11, 1960, Israeli secret agents in a neighborhood right outside of Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, grabbed the world's most notorious living Nazi and threw him into the back of a car. Adolf Eichmann, as the operational manager for uh, Hitler's final solution, had once sent millions of of Jewish people to their, their deaths. And now he was... Uh, curled up in the back of a car, blindfolded with Israeli secret agents surrounding him. Ten days later, he was flown to Jerusalem, smuggled there in an El Al flight, and went on trial for the, the crimes against humanity in, in Jerusalem. And although capital punishment is rare in Israel, uh, there, there was no doubt about what would happen to, to Eichmann because... For one who had brought so much misery upon countless numbers of people, any sentence less than execution would have seemed unjust. But Paul here is talking about some destroyers of life that need to be executed, that need to be killed. And the first principle that, that we see here for doing that is, is one that we looked at last week. Last week we talked about knowing who you are in Christ. And the first key to executing misery makers in our lives is, is really to remember who you are in Christ. So let's look at the first three verses of chapter 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ... And that is our status as believers. We have been raised with him. 
Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, in a few moments, we're going to talk about sins, a whole bunch of them, a whole list of them. And whatever the sin is that that you struggle with, here's how you're not going to overcome it. We'll never overcome any sin in our lives just by chastising ourselves, you know, and say, bad Christian, you know, don't be that way anymore. That's, that's not going to do it. In order to stop sinning, we have to start seeking God, which is what he's talking about in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it again. If then you have been raised with Christ, do what? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above. Sin is, is always an attempt to, to fill some emptiness in our lives. And the thing is, is that if we don't fill that emptiness with Christ, then we're going to seek to fill it in, in other ways. Um, and so... In order to, to stop sinning, the Bible says we have to start seeking God. That empty hole in our lives that we're trying to fill with counterfeit gods has got to be filled with the real God. Now, in verse 3, he's talking about our new identity in Christ. He says, for you have died. You've got a new life now. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God, understanding this new identity that we have in Christ is just crucial to dealing with, with sin. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 6, 11, and 12. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, and notice what Paul is saying here. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. In other words, if sin has the upper hand in our lives as believers, it's because we're letting it happen. We're letting it happen. But we have the Holy Spirit of God within us, and we are no longer slaves to sin. We have a new identity, a new power for living. And so we have to understand who we are in Christ. It's really crucial to, to overcoming sin. Now, the second thing that he tells us here is to become an executioner. Look at the language that he uses in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives this list of various sins. Now, understand, <laughs> when he says put to death, Sin. This is not a one-time action. Okay, we do understand. As to understand this, if we've been living, trying to live for Christ any length of time, we know that putting sin to death is a daily thing. It's not. A, it's not a one-time event. Now, one day we're going to be glorified and we're going to be in the presence of Jesus, and we will be removed from the very presence of sin. 
Okay, but that's heaven, not earth. On earth, we continue to, to, to battle sin. The, the battle does not end. And so this, this, it's a putting to death that, that continues as we live for Christ each, each day. Um, and notice the violence here of his, of his phrase. Kill it. He says, kill it. Put to death. Um, Jesus uses violent language to talk about how we should deal with sin, doesn't he? Jesus says in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell on July 20th, 1993, Donald Wyman was cutting timber outside of Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. And a very heavy log rolled over on his leg, causing a severe break. And he was pinned to the ground. He cried out for help for over an hour. It was a very, very rural, remote area. And he was convinced that no one was going to come. And rather than just lie there and die, he took a shoestring, um, made a tourniquet out of it, tightened it with a wrench, took out a knife, and amputated his leg. He crawled 30 yards to a bulldozer, drove half a mile to his pickup truck, and then drove a mile and a half to a farmer's house where a man named John Huber drove him to the hospital and his life was spared. He cut off his leg to save his life. Now Jesus is using language like that here, isn't he? Now obviously Jesus here, he's, he's, he's using hyperbole to make a point. He's not advocating um, self-mutilation. What he most certainly is advocating is sin execution. Jesus says you must deal radically and ruthlessly with sin. Why? Because sin is trying to destroy you. The great Puritan theologian John Owen said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We're to take no prisoners when it comes to sin. We have to become executioners of sin. Now, what he does in the latter part of verse 5 is he, he gives a list. It's the first of several lists in this section. And this is a list of things that we are, that we are to put to death. And the first one on the list in verse 5 is sexual immorality. Put to death sexual immorality. Now this term refers to any sex outside of, of marriage between a husband and wife. From the very beginning of the Bible, from the first chapter of the Bible, the Bible is crystal clear that, that sex is the good gift of God um, but it is a gift that God says is to be reserved for marriage. And, and like most sins are, sexual immorality is something good that is twisted. That's, that's the case with, with most sins. It's, it's, it's good that's twisted. Um, now, if you have made mistakes in this area... Let me encourage you with a couple of things. First, um, and this goes for, for any sin, 
Um, but I want to mention this especially because there, sometimes there's such a stigma attached to this one. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then your sins, past, present, and future, are under the blood of Christ. You have been pardoned of all of your sins, completely forgiven. In fact, God has not only pardoned you of all of your sins, wiped the slate clean, canceled the debt like we talked about last week, but in addition to that, God has pronounced you not guilty but righteous because the moment that you trusted in Christ, He credited the perfect righteousness of His Son to your account. We are all unrighteous. The Bible says even our righteousness is as filthy rags, not to mention our unrighteousness. Okay? But when we trust in Jesus, we get a righteous covering. Uh, The perfect record of Jesus is credited to us so that when God sees you now, doesn't see all the sin and all the baggage of your past or anything else, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Right? So he pardoned, he's pardoned you of your sins. He has pronounced you not guilty but righteous and given you a righteous status before him based on Christ's righteousness. He accepts you completely just as he accepts his son and loves you just as he loves his son. And furthermore, he has adopted you as his precious son or daughter. Now that's who you are in Christ. No, it doesn't matter what your, what your sin is. Uh, you know, you, that's who you are in Jesus. So important to remember. The, the second thing that he tells us to put to death is impurity. And that word refers to any uncleanness, um, and not only in action and deeds, but also in, in our thought life, which tells us that what we're to put to death is not just you know, the outward actions but any inward impurity, um, like lust, which Jesus tells us in, in Matthew 5. Again, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We have to, we have to get beyond the surface. You know, we're, we're, to, we're to go to, not just to the sinful, to put to death the sinful action, but the junk in the heart that leads to that. Now, of course, when we think about impurity, we're, we're living in a culture today where we have whole industries that are committed to fueling lust. Uh, pornog- the pornography industry, obviously, but even beyond that, um, so much of what we see, TV, movies, and even in advertising, is just designed to fuel the fire of lust. And what happens with a fire? The more that a fire is fed, the more intensely it burns. If you build a bonfire, okay, the more fuel that you put into the fire, the higher it burns, the hotter it burns, the more intensely it burns. And that's the way that the fire of, of, of lust is. The, the, the more that lust is fed, 
the worse that it, it gets, which is what makes it so addictive. And, and this is why um, men especially, because we're so visually oriented, we have to be so careful about what we allow our eyes to see. What we watch on uh, television, um, the, the way that we use the Internet, um, obviously um, very, very careful because uh, the more that this is fed, the worse that it gets. And really, the, the only way, it's like any sin, really, the key to dealing with it, as we talked about earlier, is that it's got to be replaced. It has to be replaced. Um, you can uproot a sin, but if you do not plant a love for Jesus in its place, it will grow back. It will grow back. The burning fire of lust has got to be replaced with a burning fire for Jesus Christ. Again, verses 1 and 2, what does he say? Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. Um, In order to stop sinning, we have to start seeking God. That empty place in our lives that we try to fill with sin, it's got to be filled with Jesus. And then he talks about putting to death passion and evil desire. Now, passion and desire can obviously be good things. But here, obviously, he's not talking about it in that sense. He's talking about evil desire. And when we think about passion and desire, we're talking about our want-tos, right? Our, our, the very... Our very desires, our very want-tos. Well, I mean, how, how does that change? The only one who has the power to change our want-tos, to change our hearts, again, is God. But He does have the power to do it. He says in Ezekiel 36, And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will, you will follow my decrees. It's, it's only God and the power of the spirit that, that gives us the, that, that can change our, our desires, our, our want tos. And then he talks about covetousness. Put to death covetousness, verse 5 says. Now, this can also be translated as greed. Some translations translate it that way. It's an inordinate desire for more and more and more. Jesus warned against it in Luke 12. He, says, he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So how do we, how do we tell whether or not we cross the line into covetousness? I mean, you can't determine it, certainly not by how much money someone has. I mean, some of the, some of the least covetous, covetous people and some of the most generous people that, I, that I've met are, are quite wealthy. And so it, you can't gauge it by the amount of money that someone has. So how, how, do we, how do we spot it? Well, I think that a key to spotting that, as well as lots of other sins, is... I, is, when we, is when we begin to deal with idolatry. Let's, uh, let's look again at, at verse 5. He tells us to, to put to death idolatry. Um, now, we're going to camp on this one for a few minutes because 
this is really what lurks behind every other sin. In fact, I can, I can promise you that whatever commandments that you've ever broken, you broke the first commandment before you broke any other commandment. Exodus 23, the first of the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Whatever sins that we commit, before we commit that sin, we had to commit this sin first. Um, and that's putting something or someone above God. Now, in our culture, when we, when we think of idols, I mean, what do we think about? We think about pop stars, we got sports stars, we think about people in remote villages in India, you know, bowing down to statues or something, or people in the Bible bowing down to Baal. Um, but when the Bible talks about idolatry, it's talking about something far more extensive and far more pervasive than, than, than that. Um, it's the tendency of the human heart to dethrone God. That's what idolatry is. The tendency of the human heart to dethrone God. And because of our sinful nature, our hearts are like idol factories where the assembly line just never stops. And, and we have to be so careful because idols are not always bad things. A lot of times, idols are good things that we have made into ultimate things, and we've created an idol. And it can just be so subtle. I mean, idols can be um, money and the things that money buys, obviously. Uh, sex, sex can be an idol, but, but also things like the desire for social standing can be an idol. The desire to, to, to be approved by other people um, the, the desire to be liked and accepted by others can become an, an idol. Um, our physical appearance can become an idol. Academic or athletic success, career success, comfort, TV, food, sports, hobbies, recreational pursuits, a boyfriend or girlfriend, e even our even our. Family, our, our, our children, our children's success, any of these things can become idols. Listen, when anything or anyone is more important to you than God, it's an idol. If you're trying to find your satisfaction that only God can give in anything or anyone else besides God, that's an idol. Tim Keller has written um, just a wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods that I would commend to you. It, it's, uh, it's very helpful in, in helping us to, to spot when these things have become idols because it's so subtle. I'll give you four things that, that, that help, that help in, uh, in, in spotting idols because we have to spot them in order to deal with them. Uh, the first one is this. Look at how you spend Money and time. Look at how you spend your money and your time. Tim Keller says this, Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. Jesus said that long before Tim Keller. Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so a very helpful way to try to discern whether or not something has become an idol is to look at our spending patterns, to look at our time spending patterns as well, 
and see if we see things that are just out of whack. And we can often find idols there. Uh, Another way to spot them is to, to look at your most uncontrollable emotions. What's the hardest emotion for you to deal with? You know, that you struggle with the most. The hardest one to control. Is it anger? Um, Is it fear? Is it worry? Is it despair? Is it envy? I mean, name it. What do you struggle, what what negative emotion do you struggle with, struggle to control? Um, Again, Keller says, when you pull emotions up by the roots, you will often find your idols clinging to them. There are certain kinds of fishing where when you see the water churning on the surface, you know that a school of fish is right beneath the surface. And a lot of times when our emotions really begin to churn, you know, whether it's anger or, or whatever it is, when we look beneath the churning of that emotion, oftentimes we can find something that has become more important to us than God. And so when you're dealing with one of these emotions that's very difficult for you to control, it would be very helpful to ask, hey, wait a second, you know, has, has something, what's going on here? Has something become more important to me than God? Have I elevated something or someone above the Lord in my life? Has something dethroned God in my life? We need to look at those uncontrollable emotions. Uh, third, apply the love test. Who or what do we we love the most? I mean, what is it that really gets us excited? When we have time, free time on our hands, what what does your mind habitually fly to and think about? What do you dream about the, the most? And then apply the trust test. Thomas Watson once said, to trust in anything more than God is to make it. A God. Who or what do you trust in the most? If it's not God, it's an idol. And here is, we find, really the most fatal form of idolatry. And that is trusting in your own righteousness to save you. Trusting in your own good works, trusting in your own righteousness to save you. Your righteousness will not save you. Trusting in your own righteousness, the Bible says, will not save you. It will damn you. If you die trusting in your own righteousness, that's eternity separated from God. Because the Bible makes it very clear that our own righteousness is like filthy rags. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ is perfect, without blemish. Listen, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you and I can never live. And on the cross, Jesus died for all of our unrighteousness. All of it. Christ paid the debt, paid it in full. It was all nailed to the cross of Christ with Him. He rose from the dead. He lives today. And if you will trust in Christ, 
if you will just rest in his finished work for you, then his perfect righteousness is credited to you. And when you stand before a holy God one day, he will see the righteousness of his Son. Now that's Christianity. That's the heart of the gospel. That's it. And you know, really, it's, it's understanding that at, at a deep level that, is, that really helps us more than anything else in, in killing sin, in executing these misery makers. When we understand who God is, and when we understand His great love and His amazing grace for us. Listen, when we really get that, when we really understand how much God has loved us, what He's done for us in His Son, when we understand that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us, that He paid the debt, that He took all of our unrighteousness upon Himself and died for it, died in our place, And that if we'll trust Him, that He pardons our sins, He pronounces us not guilty but righteous, and He adopts us as beloved sons and daughters. Listen, when we really get that, what does it produce? It produces a love for God. That's what it produces. And we want to obey Him, and we want to deal with sin in our lives. Why? Because we love Him. We love Him. We're not trying to deal with it because we're trying to get, it, get God to accept us. No, He's already accepted us if you're in Christ. He can't accept you any more than He already accepts you if you're in Christ. He can't love you any more than what He already loves you if you're in Christ. No matter what your struggles with sin are. Your trust is in Christ. You are His child. He loves you. He's pardoned your sins, past, present, and future. He's pronounced you not guilty but righteous. He has adopted you as one of His own. He loves you. When you get that, what does it do? It frees you to want to live for the Lord because you love Him. And see, this is really, this is really what, what, what kills sin because when we understand that, and when we understand who God is and what He has for us in Christ, then what happens is that, that sin loses its attractiveness. It loses its allure. At C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Have you become too easily pleased? Are you settling for less than God's best? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the amazing promises that we have in Christ. We thank you for your great love. Father, we pray to understand it at a deeper and deeper level, just just how much you have loved us. And Lord, as we learn more and more to warm ourselves by the fire of your love, then the fire of sin is more and more a thing of the past in our lives. 
Father, I pray for anyone here who hasn't yet come into a personal relationship with Jesus, who hasn't trusted in His finished work and come to rest in His finished work for them. Father, I pray that today You would open the eyes of their heart and that they would come to trust in Christ as Savior and simply rest in His finished work for them. As we just continue to pray, is that the cry of your heart today? The Savior, Savior's arms are open for you. Come to Him. Come to Him. Turn from trying to do life your own way, <laughs> and trying to establish your own righteousness. No, turn to Jesus and trust in what He's done for you on the cross that He rose from the dead, that He lives today and is ready to receive you. Turn to Christ and, 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 and rest completely, rely completely on what He's done for you. Jesus tells us that when we do that, that we're to acknowledge Him publicly. In just a few moments, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. In just a moment, as others stand, I want to invite you to come. I'm going to be right here at the front. Just share with me what God has done in your life today. We want to celebrate that with you. We'll set up a time for you to be baptized as a Christian. It gives you an opportunity really to, to confess your faith in Christ. Maybe you're here today and your need is for a church family. You would say, I want to be a part of, of this family of faith at First Suffolk. And we want to invite you to come today. We want to, want to welcome you. If you're here today and you're in need of uh, someone to pray with, there are people here who can do that. Or if you just want to pray at the altar, it's open for you to do that. Father, we give you now this time of invitation. Lord, would you work in hearts, Father, for decisions that need to be made today. Uh, Father, would you give the grace in hearts to make them. We ask it all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. 
and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.